Hi there, everybody. My name is Scott Grayson, and you're listening to Mentally Unscripted, the podcast where my co-host Stefan and I inspire you to think more clearly and have better conversations about the world. When you ride along with us, we'll take you on a journey that will show you there's always more than one way to look at an issue. You'll learn to think critically about what you see and hear and how to challenge the narratives those in power want you to believe. You won't always agree with us, but that's the point, to learn that we can have deep conversations and learn from each other, no matter how different we are. Stefan found himself on the DL for this episode, so I went solo and tackled the U.S. Supreme Court's recent ruling on the OSHA vaccine mandate and why it's not necessarily the victory some claim. I start the podcast by explaining administrative law and why an executive agency like OSHA can make laws despite the Constitution not granting lawmaking authority to the executive branch. I also briefly recap how we got to this point in the vaccine mandate case and what's to come. With the background material out of the way, I give my thoughts on the well-publicized factual errors by some justices and what they mean to the case. I then dive a little deeper and explain that the issue in the OSHA case wasn't whether a government agency could mandate a vaccine for an estimated 85 million people. It was which level of government can do so, leaving out any contemplation that the individual is best positioned to make their healthcare choices. Finally, I wade back into the discussion I started a few episodes ago about the rule of law and why the law is subjective. This was my first solo podcast episode. While it certainly has its warts, I enjoyed doing it and hope that I could bring a different perspective to the Supreme Court's ruling on the OSHA vaccine mandate. As always, we're building a community around Mentally Unscripted, so share this episode with your friends and interact with us at mentallyunscripted.com. And remember, the conclusion you reach is less important than the process you follow to get there. Hey everybody, this is Mentally Unscripted, and this is Scott, and I am coming at you solo this week. Unfortunately, Stefan is on the DL, uh, but we are hoping that he'll be back with us next week. But I didn't want to go a week without recording a podcast, um, so I decided to try doing one solo, and we'll we'll see how this goes. Um, but I didn't want to deny our three loyal listeners um, <laughs> their weekly episode, all of our great insight and witty banter. And uh, I guess there's not going to be any witty banter in this one since it's just me. But, you know, we'll see. I, I've been known to start talking to myself sometimes. So you might get, get a little bit of a glimpse into my different personalities, but we'll see how that goes. Um, but, uh, you know, I joke around about our three loyal listeners. We've got more than that. And we want to just thank everybody, everyone who downloads this episode. I mean, you guys are wonderful. And we really want to build a, uh, we want to build a community around this. Stefan and I were dedicated to try to make this as best we can. Um, we're, neither of us are really the personalities, I think, who uh, make the, make doing podcasts easy for us. We're not terribly extroverted. And so I know that you know, at least I stammer a lot and you give, give you a lot of ums and uhs, but I hopefully, uh, hopefully I have some valuable insights in what I say so that you guys can, you know, overlook maybe some of those shortcomings and uh, get something out of it. And we, we are looking to you guys to help us grow this thing. So if you get anything out of it, I mean, please share it with your friends, your family, your dog walker, your gardener, your dog walker's gardener, uh, your worst enemy, uh, you know, whoever, the person who's randomly walking down the street, uh, just stop them and say, hey, listen to Mentally Unscripted. It's a great podcast. And also, um, I've 
realized that we had an oversight when we went to Substack and uh, when we moved our website over to Substack, um, I realized we didn't set up a contact page. So you guys don't have our email addresses. So I'm going to go ahead and get my email address put up on there. So uh, you guys definitely um, feel free to send me any emails with any comments um, and always, um, you know, feel free to comment on the actual podcast page too. Uh, we'd like to get some discussions going and we, we're, you know, Stefan and I, I mean, we're, we're pretty thick skinned. We can, we can take criticism. Um, but like we said, you know, we, we want the criticism to come from someplace. We just don't want it to be just blind criticism for the sake of criticizing, but yeah, we'd love to get some discussions going on out there. So check that out mentally unscripted.com. Also, um, I am trying to do this, uh, a video recording, uh, today. This is the first time I'm trying to record video. And luckily for most of you, you're just going to be listening to this. So you don't have to actually watch this terrible video. Um, It's going to be posted up on Odyssey. So if you want to check it out, maybe see everything you're not supposed to do as far as recording video, because I honestly have no idea what I'm doing. You can see I know nothing about lighting or anything. So but yeah, for a first try, I guess, as long as it records and you can, you know, somewhat vaguely see my face, um, then, you know, maybe we're off to a good start. And this is actually my second attempt recording this. The first attempt, I made it all the way through the podcast and then realized that the recording stopped about 10 minutes in for some reason. Um, not a hundred percent sure on that. So I'm watching the clock today to try to make sure that doesn't happen again. Fingers crossed. I uh, also wanted to let you guys know, um, if you remember back in episode 47, uh, Stefan and I, it was a potpourri episode for us, but we talked a little bit at the end of the episode about Bitcoin maximalism. And our friends, Myron and Jeremy over at Mental Supermodels, they picked up that thread and they released an episode yesterday. Um, so when you're hearing this, it should be out in, in your podcast player. You should be able to download it about Bitcoin maximalism. And it was a response to what Stefan and I had said. And it was a really good episode. Um, they agreed with some of what we had said. They disagreed with some of what we had said, but they took a much deeper dive into Bitcoin maximalism than what Stefan and I had done. So it's it's worth a, a, a listen, definitely worth a listen. And, you know, just a little heads up, maybe a little spoiler alert. Everything that Stefan and I said that Myron and Jeremy agree with, they, they are correct. Anything that they disagree with, then they're wrong because, you know, they're just... Uh, you know, they're just clowns. They don't know what they're talking about. No, I'm just kidding. Um, we've had both of them on the podcast and we've actually um, um, been building a relationship with them uh, offline as well. Um, a couple of guys who like-minded in a lot of ways, but um, have differences of opinions in some things. And um, it's it's good when you can have people that you can uh, have civil conversations with. And that's really the whole point behind Mentally Unscripted is be able to find the common ground where it exists and be able to have civil discussions where that common ground doesn't exist. And you never know, you could just end up changing your mind about something. I know changing your mind these days is not something that's very uh, popular, but um, we need to get people more comfortable with that. I think we would be in a much better place right now if some of our politicians and so-called experts um, were just able to admit that maybe they jumped to a conclusion early on and that they were wrong. Um, but unfortunately, it doesn't seem like that's happening. So anyway, uh, we had originally planned on doing a Bitcoin episode uh, uh, this week. Um, but for you folks who've listened to our prior Bitcoin episodes, you know that 
that Stefan's really the expert on that. I'm, I'm just kind of hanging on and trying to keep up with them when we talk about Bitcoin. So I didn't think that I would be able to do the topic justice by myself. Um, so I've been thinking about doing my own podcast where I talk about um, libertarian or legal issues from a libertarian, voluntarist, individualist perspective. Um, so I'm going to give that a try today. We're going to see how this goes. And honestly, I am not used to talking for 45 minutes or an hour straight. Um, so there's, and I've been doing it a lot. There's going to be a lot of ums and uhs and stuff in here, but I'm going to try to get through this. We'll see how it goes. And, um, and I don't, I don't know if this is something I'm going to continue. Um, we'll see how it goes. Like I said, we'll, we'll just see how it goes. We'll see how I enjoy it. I enjoyed doing the research for this. It was, it was awesome. I'm a, I'm a big introvert. So doing the research, I really like and, and writing out my notes and everything, but then getting on the podcast and talking about it, not, not so much my wheelhouse, but yeah, we'll see how it goes. So today's topic is I wanted to talk about the uh, recent Supreme Court decision regarding the OSHA vaccine mandate. Okay. And the so it's Friday the 21st, January 21st, and the, the decision was released last Thursday. I believe it was the 13th. So I'm a little late to the party. Some of the other legal podcasts and blogs have already done their analysis, but I think I've got maybe a couple of insights or a few insights that uh, are a little are, are unique. So I wanted to come out with this and this is not, a lot of this is my opinion, obviously. Um, you guys know where I stand on a lot of things. I'm, I'm definitely a libertarian. I'm, I'm small government to actually no government um, leaning. Um, so my viewpoint, I think, is, is going to be uh, unique because of that. And I've got three, three basic things or three basic topics that I wanted to cover. Um, that I think are interesting about this case. Um, one was uh, the nature of the case, which I'll explain in a little bit, uh, the nature of how the case got in front of the Supreme Court. Because of that, there was no there was no robust body of evidence that had been put into the record and that had been vetted and validated. Uh, so we'll talk about that. Also, one thing that gave me a little dismay is that the central question in the case was it wasn't whether the government has the right to mandate a vaccine and to what degree that that question seemed to be a, a foregone conclusion and the case the argument on the case was really over which level of government had the right to do that is it the federal government or the state and local government yeah, so we'll talk about that a little bit more and then if you remember a couple episodes ago when Stefan and I did our the top five things we learned in 2021, I uh, very poorly tried to explain the myth of the rule of law and the myth of an objective law. Um, so I think this case, if you look at the, the majority opinion and the concurring opinion and you compare those to the, uh, the dissenting opinions, you would really be able to see that because um, both sides, there didn't really seem to be any argument over what the law was. It was just how the how each side was interpreting the law. So I think that'll be a, a pretty interesting discussion. Uh, so we'll get into it. So first off, you know, a little bit about some background. Um, you know, first off, I, I, as far as the vaccines go and how effective they are and all of that, I, you know, I'm not going to make any comments on that because 
first off, I don't know that it's really relevant to this discussion. I know a lot of people are trying to pull that information in and making it relevant, but this really isn't a, the question before the court wasn't how dangerous is COVID and how effective are the vaccines? The question before the court was, does OSHA have the authority to issue this mandate? So personally, I think any sort of a mandate like this is terrible. And, you know, I, I think this is one of these situations where the masses, the wisdom of the masses, I think, comes into play. It's a very if if COVID were this hugely dangerous thing, and I'm, I'm not denying that it's killed people. But if it were this hugely dangerous thing, you wouldn't have to order people to get the vaccine. Right. People would see what was going on around them and they would be lined up begging for the vaccine. And you're just not seeing that. So whenever you get to a point where government has to start ordering you around to do something, you have to step back and ask, what is it? What What's missing here? What 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 are we not seeing? What What is missing from this equation? Why are people not clamoring for this? And I think people, you know, when people operate in a mob, okay, and emotion is taking over, then a group of people can be pretty dumb. They can do stupid things. But when people, when a large group of people are given adequate information and given time to look at a situation with reason and logic, the masses, they generally can come to the right conclusion. It may not be 100% right. Not everyone's going to agree, but generally that's the way it's going to go. And that's sort of the idea behind a democracy, I think, is that the if you take a vote on things and you allow the majority to decide the direction, then the theory is, is that that's going to be the best direction for most of the people. So this whole idea of, of, of ordering people to get a vaccine when there's no clear evidence that everyone needs the vaccine and there's no clear evidence that, or people just, they aren't demanding it. Okay. Um, is, is questionable to me. Um, I also wanted to, so enough of that. That's, that's, that's my opinion. Um, so I wanted to explain to, um, what an agency like OSHA is, where it gets its, um, where it gets its authorities from. So this is a whole section of, uh, legal scholarship. It's called administrative law and there's no way, I mean, it's an entire law school class and there's no way I'm going to be able to cover it on this podcast. So this is just a very high level uh, illustration or explanation of how it works. So OSHA is the office of, uh, or it's occupational safety and health administration. I should say OSHA, O S H A occupational safety and health administration. And it's part of the department of labor and the department of labor is an executive branch agency. And if you remember from your third or fourth grade social studies class, the executive's role in government is to enforce laws, and it's the legislature's role to uh, make the laws. So you you might wonder why is an executive agency making laws? Where does that authority come from? And a lot of people, especially in the libertarian community, think that this just by the nature of OSHA being an executive agency that it. Anything that it does is unconstitutional because it doesn't have the authority under the Constitution to make laws. I, I happen to agree with that. But we live in a, in a system where this idea of delegation is an accepted part of our political and legal system. So I think it's important to understand the, how it works, its nature. So um, we came up with this idea of delegation 
and basically what it is is that Congress can pass a law that gives the executive branch the authority to create certain laws to regulate a certain area. And they usually do it. It's pretty, um, it, it's pretty, it, it, it's, it's a defined targeted area. It's not defined in detail. And we'll talk about that a little bit more. But if Congress sees something that needs to be done, Congress can pass a law that will instruct the executive branch to uh, create an agency or to, or to put forth rules, uh, allowing the executive to um, it, it enforce in this particular area. So that's what happened with OSHA is um, Congress gave the executive branch the instructions to create an agency to regulate workplace safety and employee safety is essentially what it is. The executive took that, uh, took that law and they created OSHA. OSHA created rules and um, you might also refer to them as regulations and a rule or a regulation is, uh, it, it's essentially a law. It has the same force and effect as a law. But we don't call them laws, and I think that maybe is just so we can distinguish between whether it's something created by the legislature and the executive. I'm not real sure, but that's that's the way I think of it. And then OSHA is responsible for enforcing those regulations. Um, when I worked for the government, I worked for um, a, 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 actually one of OSHA's sister agencies, OFCCP, the Office of Federal Contract Compliance Programs, and our mandate was to enforce affirmative action regulations on uh, federal government contractors. So, and then after I left OFCCP, I went over to the Office for Civil Rights in the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, and it was a similar thing over there. It's another executive agency that puts forth uh, um, regulations that it enforces and it, it pleases and enforces. And I wasn't an attorney for either of those um either for either of those agencies, I was an investigator, but we were, you know, neck deep in the regulations all the time because we were investigating complaints and um, auditing contractors, um, auditing affirmative action programs of contractors and whatnot. So it dealt with the regulations a lot. So I'm, I'm pretty familiar with them. So that's where the whole idea, or that's, so that's the whole basis of people saying that OSHA has the authority to um, issue any regulation to protect the workplace. And what happens is that Congress can't Congress can't foresee every little detail that's going to come up. So the law allowing the creation of the agency of delegating that authority to the executive is usually pretty vague. Okay, and then they leave it to the executive agency to iron out the details. Okay, and sometimes those executive agencies will will overstep a little bit. They'll try to do something that Congress didn't intend for them to do, in which case you can have the either the Supreme Court can step in and say, no, um, you're going too far, or Congress can um, amend the law to take some authority away to, to, be, to make it more clear what authority they intended for the agency to have. And that's really what the question in this case was, is did OSHA overstep the bounds of what the law passed by Congress allowing the accretion of OSHA intended? Okay. And I also wanted to point out that one thing that I think some people are getting wrong is that this decision from the Supreme Court, and it was a, it was a 63 decision to issue a stay against OSHA from enforcing the mandate. Okay. And uh, and so this isn't the end of the story. It's, this isn't the end of the road for the OSHA mandate. It's not dead. Um, what it was is it, it was basically the court saying that, you know, we think there are issues with this, with the man, with OSHA's mandate. So we are going to prevent. So we're ordering OSHA to not enforce it 
until the all of the legal challenges to uh, the the mandate get hashed out in the lower courts. Okay, so if you guys know. OSHA issued the mandate, and I think it was pretty much immediately challenged in probably every circuit of the of the U.S. right away. And the Fifth Circuit, the United States Fifth Circuit, they heard their case pretty quickly, and they issued the they issued the initial stay. Um, the government decided to con- consolidate all of the cases from all the different circuits into one circuit, so they would only have to t- answer the question once. And that, by lottery, I, apparently they were randomly chosen. The Sixth Circuit got that. Um, so the Sixth Circuit heard the case, and they actually overturned the Fifth Circuit stay. And then when that happened, then the states that were challenging the mandate went to the Supreme Court. So that's how the case made it to the Supreme Court. So as it's sitting, um, the, the case is actually with the Sixth Circuit. The Supreme Court effectively just stepped in and said, hey, we we think there's – they didn't come out and say we think there's a problem with this mandate, but what they uh, ruled is that we think that the the states would win we think the states would win their case based off the merits and because of that there would be harm if we allowed OSHA to go ahead and enforce this so we're going to say OSHA you can't enforce it and we need to wait and for this to play out in the lower courts okay so that's where the case is and I haven't heard anything about anything I haven't heard anything about the Sixth Circuit um, hearing any more arguments on that as of today um, but I, honestly I haven't looked recently I probably should have checked that out before I started doing this podcast but that's okay um, so that's where we're at is that this does not kill the OSHA mandate it's the Supreme Court has not said that it's unconstitutional um, at least not directly said it's unconstitutional. But when the Supreme Court says, yeah, well, we think the petitioners are going to win this case on the merits, they are sort of wink, wink, nod, nod. Yeah, we think it's unconstitutional, but we're going to let, but we need to let the whole process play out. Now, the Sixth Circuit, they're not under any obligation to follow the same reasoning as the Supreme Court. Um, nothing requiring them to do that. The Sixth Circuit can. Um, you know they're going to hear all new information they're going to hear new information so they can make their own decision on that and likely whatever that decision is it's probably going to get appealed up back up to the supreme court um at which case you know hopefully at that point the supreme court would be making a final ruling as to whether it's constitutional or not so where we stand now is it's just a stay against enforcing it um also um just wanted to point out that the supreme court actually heard two cases here they combine two cases one is a because there's also a cms mandate and i'm focusing specifically on the osha mandate um i don't know as much about the cms mandate and cms is the center for medicare services i believe it's either the center of medicaid services center for medicare services i don't remember which off the top of my head um, but that's an agency it's in the department of health and human services and they're um, their role is to manage the Medicare and Medicaid programs. Um, and, and in that case, the court actually voted five to four to allow the CMS uh, vaccine mandate to, to go forward. Whereas in the OSHA case, they voted, uh, like I said, six to three to put a stay on the mandate. So there's some differences in the cases, um, differences in the agencies that I think make a, uh, that led to that difference. And I also, I think it maybe was some of the just justices just trying to split the baby, um, get rid of one mandate and allow the other stay to stay quite possibly. 
So with all of that, I know that's a lot of, a lot of explanation, but I've heard some commentators not really understanding what OSHA was and where it comes from and where it fits into the government. And I think that's important because this whole idea of delegating powers is, is at the center of, of this decision. Um, so the first issue is the lack of evidence that's in the record. Um, a lot of you have no doubt seen the memes and heard people criticize Justice Sotomayor for uh, saying that 100,000 kids have been hospitalized, many of them seriously from COVID. And we know that that's, I mean, just by any numbers, any official numbers, whether you believe the numbers or not, is that 100,000 is just way, way, way high. I think the, the actual number is something like 3,500 or something have been treated in the hospital. 3,500 kids have been treated have been treated in the hospital for COVID. And she was heavily criticized for that. And that raises the question of, you know, how much, how much evidence and information should the justices bring in from the outside? So like I said, since this, this was a case arguing for a stay against enforcing the regulation, while the actual case gets played out in the lower courts, there wasn't a huge body of evidence because there just wasn't a lot of history in this. And so normally, the Supreme Court, by the time the case gets to the Supreme Court, there will be a lot of evidence would have already been argued over at the lower courts. And there would be a pretty solid body of um, evidence in the case already. In this in this situation, there really wasn't any. So the justices, and Sotomayor wasn't the only ones. Other justices made mistakes and overstated things as well. Or understated, overstated things, got things wrong as well. And I think they were rightly being criticized because, first off, I mean, this is a question of whether a agency is overstepping its what it's allowed to do under the law. And by bringing in information like 100,000 kids are being treated for COVID, you know, this is terribly dangerous. Vaccines are the only thing to uh, to combat it and whatnot. That's that's stuff that's not going to the question. That's stuff that I think is trying to sway emotions. Okay, because whether it's an emergency or not, it shouldn't matter to whether this should. That's a question or information. It shouldn't matter to whether this thing is constitutional or not, or whether it would or whether um, any claims would succeed on the merits or not. Okay, we don't we don't we don't allow unconstitutional things to happen just because it's a big emergency. And the concurring opinion from Neil Gorsuch, I think. Um, at the end, he explained this pretty well. Let me pull that up. Uh, let's see here. Yeah, so there was three three justices who concurred here, and right at the end, um, he's he's discussing the law's demands and what the court's role is in in meeting the law's demands. Um, and he was saying, and he says here, like, respecting those demands may be trying in times of stress. But if this court were to abide them only in more tranquil conditions, declarations of emergencies would never end. And the liberties our Constitution's separation of powers seeks to preserve would amount to little. And I think that's a good, I think that's a good statement right there. Um, you know, he's essentially saying, like, you know, we, we can't alter how we interpret laws just because something is... A big emergency because if we start to do that then everything's going to be an emergency and i know uh, i've heard other commentators talk about that 
that um, if we allow, like, especially the governor is being granted all these emergency powers to issue these lockdowns and mask mandates and whatnot, that if we allow them to get get away with that and it becomes the norm, then all of a sudden we're going to have a lot of emergencies. Things that are not emergencies are going to get turned into emergencies. There's going to be civil unrest. There's going to be divisiveness. I mean, we're seeing all that now. So I don't think it's fantasy to think to think that that would be bad for the country. So we need to try to stand firm when we're looking at these laws and interpreting them to not let to not let any sort of uh, emotional pleas try to sway us and make us think that well you know we can we can kind of maybe ignore the constitution a, a little bit here because it's an emergency it, no it, just because it's an emergency does not mean we can dismiss the constitution and i think that's that's really good here so as far as I'm concerned, they, I didn't like that any of the justices were really bringing in this information about how much of an emergency this is or how deadly COVID is. Because remember, this, this wasn't a case over how effective the vaccines are or how effective any alternative treatments are. This was a case over whether one agency, OSHA, was authorized to issue this mandate. And we'll see when we get to my next point. It was a it was a foregone conclusion that the government has the right to issue the mandate. The question was, excuse me, was only who has the right to issue the mandate. Um, so I would have I would have preferred to have seen the justices not bring that information in um, because I just didn't think it was really relevant to the case. And I think it was an attempt by um, by some people to try to sway to sway others or to try to um, bias the case or shift the the thinking on the case in one direction or another by doing that so let me take a little drink here okay um and the other thing about this case that falls in line with this is this whole idea of experts Uh, you'll see there's an argument in the case where both sides the the uh the majority and the dissenting opinions both agree that it's not the that the Supreme Court's not an expert in these areas. They're not public health experts. They're not experts on virus or probably any any medical questions. Um, they both concede that, but they do say that. But it's still their job to. Well, the the majority opinion says you know we're not trying to be put ourselves in the place of experts because we're not experts. We're just trying to look at the law. But then the dissent comes back and says, no, the Supreme Court is trying to, it's trying to put itself in the place of the experts. The experts have said we need this mandate and therefore we need to, therefore we have to let the mandate go through or we should let the mandate get implemented. And I thought that was a really crazy thing to say because, you know, again, just because you're an expert says something doesn't mean you throw out the Constitution. Okay, just just because an expert says we need to have these lockdowns or these mask mandates, you don't take people's rights and just flush them down the toilet. You don't take away people's right to to the sovereignty over their own body, you know, just because some expert has said that you have to. So I, I didn't like that part of the dissenting opinion. Um, I, you know, I did like that the court recognized that it's not the expert and that it's not trying to play the expert. Um, 
but you, you know what the court is an expert in or ostensibly is an expert in is interpreting the constitution i mean that's their job and that's what they were doing here they weren't the the the, the majority neither the majority nor the concurring opinions were coming out and saying no we don't think covid's not dangerous no we don't think that there's a need for people to protect themselves they just said simply said this is Based off of the law, Congress did not grant OSHA this sweeping authority. Um, so um, the dissent taking it and trying to turn it into a, you know, the, the court is trying to set themselves up as some sort of medical expert, uh, and that's dangerous, I think was very disingenuous, and, and I didn't like it. So um, the next topic I wanted to move into is, like I said, the, the, the question came down to not does the government have the authority to mandate a vaccine? It was which level of government has the authority to mandate the vaccine? Um, it was is it the federal government or is it a state? Is it the state or local government? And I was dismayed to see that nowhere in the opinions and in the, the majority of the concurring or the dissenting opinion was it ever brought up that maybe this is something we should let people decide on their own in conjunction with their doctors. Uh, you know, maybe we should step aside, let the doctors have all the information and let people make their own darn decisions. And, and I, I didn't like that. That was, it's just, a priori decided that, that the experts, again, we're going back to the experts, that the experts are just going to tell us what we need to do. Um, and that the individual and personal responsibility, um, sovereignty over our bodies that doesn't play any role in the question and so again this was you know the and the question really was is it the states is it for the states to mandate this or is it for the federal government so it could be that maybe that question just didn't have any place in here you know so i don't know i don't know if any of the states any of the people arguing against the mandates actually brought that up i didn't listen to all the oral arguments but I would have liked to have seen something from the justices, some, some one justice saying, you know what, maybe maybe not only is this, you know, not not a federal thing, but maybe it's not even a state that maybe maybe this is something we let people make up their own decisions about. And again, they're not experts, um, but to see it just not even raised and dismissed, just not even raised in the first place. Um, I, I didn't make me feel um, didn't make me feel like this entire question is going to get a fair shake at, in at the judicial in the judicial system. Um, you know, similarly, there was no question of alternative treatments of um, uh, of natural immunity or anything um, being drawn into the question. And and I know I, I'm kind of contradicting myself because I said earlier that I don't think the court should be bringing that outside information in. But we did see that the court was bringing outside information in, and this isn't the only case they do it. They do it a lot. Um, anyone who thinks that justices are wholly objective, I, th I think you're living in a in a fantasy land. And we'll get a get into that a little bit in the next section when I talk about how the law is not objective. Um, so it would have been good to see somebody at least, you know, give a head nod to, you know, hey, maybe we should just let people make their own decisions on this, right? Um, so that's interesting. And I don't know, I haven't read, I don't know how many amicus briefs were filed for this. Uh, for those of you who don't know, an amicus brief is like a friend of the court brief. Um, so it's someone who has some sort of a, um, a, uh, a little bit of a dog in the, f dog in the fight, I guess, so to speak, can file a brief, um, on one side or another for one side or the other, um, kind of arguing, trying to bring in new information and kind of argue why the court should go one way or another. I do know that, um, 
Jay Bhattacharya. Bhattacharya, Bhattacharya, I've heard it pronounced two different ways. I know him and some other medical professionals did write a amicus brief. Um, Tom Woods talked about it on one of his episodes. I'll link to it in the show notes. And he went through it. And they were essentially arguing that because of where we're at with the virus and what we're seeing from Omicron, um, the question of a mandate, it's just moot at this point, that the current vaccines aren't protecting against um the Omicron variant. And in fact, I guess there's some evidence that there's actually negative efficacy, meaning that if you get the vaccines as they currently stand, it increases your chance of getting Omicron. You know, I'm not, I'm not an expert on that, so I'm not going to um, comment on whether that's true or not, but apparently there's evidence out there showing that. Um, So I do know that there was that amicus brief was filed. And I imagine that the justices, I don't know for sure, but I imagine that the justices don't, they can't read all of the amicus briefs. I'm guessing they probably have a law clerk or somebody who reads them and maybe summarizes them for them. So I know that at least in some way, some information was brought in um, through this through this amicus brief um, that, uh, that because of the changing nature of COVID and where we're at now, that these mandates are, like I said, they're, they're just, they're a moot point right now. So, and that there are uh, other alternative treatments that are available besides vaccination, but there wasn't any, like I said, there wasn't even a head nod from any of the justices in that direction. And, and for someone who believes in the individual sovereignty and personal responsibility, like I do, I, you know, I don't like reading opinions that just seem to, that, like I said, it's, it's not like they brought it up and dismissed it. They just totally just didn't bring it up at all. And, and that I didn't like that. Okay. So we are, we're going on to uh, about 40 minutes in here and oh wait, over 10 minutes. And it looks like we're still recording. So awesome. All right. So. How's everybody doing? Keeping up with me? All right. Like I said, uh, this is my first solo podcast. It's it's hard to talk this long. I gotta say, um, not used to it, and I got a. It's it's a little bit after lunchtime on Friday here in Denver, and I'm going to admit I've got a little bit of Jack Daniels in my coffee mug here, um, <laughs> trying to loosen things up a little bit. Yeah. All right. But it's just a little bit of Jack Daniels. Oh, and I just knocked my table here a little bit. Honestly, it's just a little bit of Jack Daniels. All right. Um, so moving on to the last the last section here and uh, the myth of the rule of law and this idea of whether the law is objective or subjective. So like I mentioned, we talked about this a few episodes ago, and I think I, I very poorly explained it. So hopefully I'll do a little better um, explaining this this concept this time. But... The rule of law is this idea that um, no no man, no person in in our country is above the law. Like we are a nation of laws and not of men. Meaning that whether you're the president, right on down to an attorney, a, a custodian, an accountant, you know, whatever, it, we're, we're all subject to the same laws. We all, excuse me, have to uh, obey the same traffic laws. We all have to, you know, obey the the same laws as far as um, reporting income on our taxes and anything, right? That there, there are no laws. There are no laws that one group is absolved from. And the reason why, the reason why we need to have this concept or the reason why it's important for a government to have this concept is to give itself legitimacy. Because if the people knew that um, someone who's making a law 
was not going to be bound by that same law, then the the citizens would i mean they would they would speak out against that and possibly rise up against that um and they would see the government as being illegitimate because why are you making laws that apply to me but not to you and that's been one of the i think that's been one of the major things that has caused the government and our public officials to lose credibility in this over the last couple of years is watching uh, people like Gavin Newsom you know make make a mask mandate and tell people that they need to social distance and not socialize and then get caught out, you know, at a fancy restaurant. And I know here in Denver, we had something similar where the mayor, um, not this past Thanksgiving, but the Thanksgiving before was admonishing people to stay home over Thanksgiving. And then he was caught on video at the airport, getting on an airplane to go visit with his family. And I know it's happened other cities, other other areas have had similar things happening where the people in charge are making rules, but then they're not um, abiding by those rules themselves. So this idea of rule of law, when people do things like that and then they aren't held accountable for it, then that just that shatters the idea of the rule of law, because that that tells you that uh, that, no, there are people who aren't subject to the same rules and the people making the rules aren't subject to those rules. And like I said, that that ruins credibility. And so when a government loses credibility, it 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 has to resort to brute force or coercion in order to uh, maintain its authority. And I think we're seeing that now with the government having to resort to uh, vaccine mandates in order to try to get people vaccinated. If the government had credibility, I think people would be a little more willing to trust the government. I think they would be a little less risk averse. And they would be, you know, more willing to um, do what the government is telling them is for the common good. But when people see the government not being accountable to the people for the laws that the government is breaking or bending or sidestepping, whatever you want to call it, um, it it puts the government in a bad position. And and so that takes us into this idea of. Uh, objective law. So we'll see here that it would be nice if law is objective because then everybody could look at a law and interpret it exactly the same way, but it's not. Okay. We're all the product of our upbringings of the the things that have happened are what we've been taught, what, you know, just our interests, um, you know, people that we've been exposed to, um, you know, whatever we're, we're all a unique person and we all have our different ways of looking at the world. So that means that two people can look at the exact same words on a page and interpret it differently. And the law is no exception. And because of that, you can have different sides interpret the constitution differently or in, or like i said interpret a law differently so it's always it's always possible for the person making the law to say well it's going to apply to you because we're interpreting it this way in this situation but um but i didn't break the law because of this because of this other factor right they can always interpret it to try to make it look like they're uh, like they're in compliance while you're not um and that's that's where we get into problems. In this case, um, this case I think is a good example of how uh, just subjective the law is, and how open and how much that opens us up to politic- politicization and just biases coming in and affecting 
uh, how these how these questions turn out, the answers that we come up with these questions. So if you look at the the majority and the concurring opinions, um, so the 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 law that both sides, the dissent and the majority, both cite. I think it's pretty much the same law that they cite. I think they even quote same sections of the law that is authorizing. Remember, Congress passes the law that authorizes the executive or instructs the executive to create an agency like OSHA. And in that law, the Congress lays out what they expect that agency to do. So both sides, the majority and the dissent, I think quoted the exact same sections of that law that OSHA is to um, regulate uh, occupational safety, employee safety, workplace safety, that sort of thing. The question comes down to, though, is a vaccine, it extends past the workplace. So it's not just an occupational or workplace question. It extends past that and goes into a person's personal life. And it's not something that we can take back. Once you get the vaccine, you have it. You can't get rid of it. You know, it may, it, its effectiveness may wane over time, but you, you have it. And that's been one of the concerns about this vaccine is um, this mRNA technology in this particular vaccine hasn't been around long enough for us to really have long-term safety data on it. So if you force people to get the vaccine, then how do we know that we're not forcing people that are to do something that is going to end up being detrimental to them down the road. Um, whereas on the flip side, something like, um, you know, wearing gloves, if you're working with hazardous chemicals or something, wearing gloves or a respirator or something, right? That's something you don't only have to do in the workplace. Because when your shift's over, you take all of your protective equipment off and you go home. You don't have to wear it at home. So it doesn't, it doesn't bleed over into your personal life. And so, so the question comes down is, did Congress, the law that Congress passed, did it allow OSHA to regulate the workplace in such a way that it could also bleed over into regulating your personal life or not? And those two issues were, like, like I said, I mean, the, but both sides or the sides interpreted that question differently and came up with different answers. So the majority said, and the concurring opinion, Gorsuch's concurring opinion, um, explains this pretty well. Um, and he relies on what they call the major questions doctrine. And what that doctrine effectively says is that the OSHA's, OSHA's vaccine mandate is a, it's an expansive rule. It affects not only the workplaces, but it affects, like I said, personal lives. It, it goes beyond the workplace and it's going to, it's going to have a, an effect on the economy because people are going to quit their jobs. Um, and, uh, in order to, because they don't want to be forced to get the vaccine and it's going to cause a lot of problems. And so it's, it's pretty expansive. It's going to have a, a pretty big impact on, like, like I said, the economy and on, um, and on our social fabric. And it, it's also going to create divisiveness. I mean, I think that's already here. And the major questions doctrine is, it states that if Congress intended for an agency to have the authority to write such an impactful regulation, then the court expects that Congress would have spelled that out explicitly in the law. And in this case, Congress did not. Congress only authorized OSHA to regulate the workplace. They did not authorize OSHA to regulate anything beyond the workplace. And because this mandate goes beyond the workplace, it therefore is exceeding OSHA's authority. And that, and that's, that's 
and to me, that's that's exactly the way we need to interpret it. I think because the Constitution is enumerated powers, I think we need to be very strict on how we um, how we interpret Congress's authority to delegate. You know, again, I'm not saying that I agree with this whole delegation idea, but if but delegation is part of our system, so we need to be very strict on how they. Um, uh, how Congress delegates the power. And we need to be careful of letting agencies uh, take more power than what they've been given. And there's a part here in the um, in the concurring opinion where they talk about this. Um, it says the, the major questions doctrine guards against this possibility, and that's the possibility of a um, of an agency exploiting some gap or vague part of a statute in order to take more power than what Congress intended. Um, So the major questions doctrine guards against this possibility by recognizing that Congress does not usually hide elephants in mouse holes. Uh, I thought that was a good quote. And apparently that came from an earlier case, um, Whitman v. American Trucking Associations. But that's the idea, is that um, Congress doesn't write laws expecting uh, agencies to, like I said, exploit some gap or some vague language in law in order to implement some sweeping uh, mandate that's going to impact impact estimated 85 million people. Um, And along with that, there's also what's called the the non-delegation doctrine. So um, delegation isn't, we don't allow delegation across the board, at least in theory. The idea is that there are some questions that are just so big that Congress cannot pass the buck, so to speak. They can't delegate that question to the executive, uh, the executive branch. The Congress has to deal with it. And here's an, another part from the concurring opinion. It says, there are some important subjects which must be entirely regulated by the legislature itself and others of less interest in which a general provision may be made and power given to others to fill up the details. So that's that's the question. Is In some cases, if it's a big question, then Congress should not be delegating that to the executive. If it's something smaller, then yeah, Congress can delegate that to the executive and then let the executive come up with the details. So like I said, I I worked in enforcement, affirmative action program enforcement. So Congress can say, you know, the executive, we think it's important that um, we implement an affirmative action program or something, um, but we're we're going to let you fill in the details. So then OFCCP, the agency I work for, they they came up with their regulations about how the affirmative action programs are going to work, how the audits worked, and, and how the complaint process worked and that sort of thing. But a bigger question, which is what I, I agree, what this vaccine mandate is, because it's going to inf- impact 85 million people. That's that's not a question that Congress should really be punting over to the executive. And that's not a question that the executive branch should just be grabbing and taking on for itself. So, again, it's it, it, it's not you don't want to hide an elephant in a mouse hole um, on the flip side, though. The dissent, if you read it, uh, the dissent argues almost just the opposite of that, saying that it's not the court's it's not the court's job to read a limitation into the law that doesn't exist. And by issuing the stay, they're arguing that the court is is doing just that, that it's reading the limitation into the law. So which is it, right? Is it that Congress has to explicitly authorize something of this magnitude, or is it that 
Congress has to explicitly exclude something of this magnitude, right? Does Congress have to write the limit into the law or do they have to write the authority into the law? And and, and so that's that's why I'm arguing that this is subjective because it's, it's just differences of opinion um, because both sides are reading the same law. They're just interpreting it differently. One is saying, well, there's no limitation here, so OSHA is allowed. The other is saying, well, this hasn't been expressly allowed, so it's not allowed. Uh, what do you do? Um, and this is where, like I said, politicization, politicization, politicization um, can come in and uh, biases and whatnot can come in. And again, right, if you think the justices are completely objective, uh, you're, I think you're foolish. Uh, they're going to let... Um, they're going to let inside info, outside information influence them. And again, we saw that by some of the, the comments that the justices were making or some of the questions that they were asking. Um, they were bringing in information from the outside and they were referring to, you know, the dissent refers to um, the virus as a grave danger, right? The virus po- also poses a grave danger to millions of employees. Okay, well, what, what does grave danger mean, right? They didn't f- define that. They put it in quotes here in the in the decision. Um, but, you know, what does grave danger mean? And um, is it a grave danger if we have, if we accept that there's more than one way to treat this, if we accept that natural immunity is a thing, right? Is it, is it still a grave danger or is it only a grave danger if we accept that the vaccine is the only way of combating it? You know, so there's, there's a lot of questions about that. Um, so anyway, I hope that was a little bit of a different take on the, um, on this decision. And like I said, this was only the OSHA decision. I didn't get into the CMS decision because that's a little bit of a different thing. Um, but the, the court, the Supreme court did rule six to three to, um, issue a stay against OSHA from enforcing this. And this could play in this. So this needs to play out the lower levels. Now, a, a couple things could happen. You know, OSHA could decide to just drop it, which I haven't said any, read anything that indicates that they're going to do that. But OSHA could, they could just drop it and say, okay, well, it, it's unnecessary at this point. So we're not going to pursue it. We're not going to waste our time pursuing it. We're just going to rescind the rules and we're done. Or OSHA could fight it out. And like I said, I think it would end up at the Supreme Court anyway. And I wouldn't see the Supreme Court coming up with any different decision than what it already has, um, arguing that OSHA is overstepping its authority. Um, at which case, it, you know, it still isn't dead because OSHA can always go back and rewrite the mandate in a way so that it doesn't, um, so that it doesn't overstep its authority. You know, that's that's happened before, um, where the Supreme Court or someone challenges a regulation in court, and the agency can go back and they'll just change the regulation to make it conform. Okay, and I think that's you know, and again, if you accept this whole administrative law process, that's a legitimate thing to do. Is you know, you say, well, I did it, I did it, but it was wrong, so I'm going to go back and correct it. You know, we allow people to correct their mistakes. And again, I'm not saying that I, I accept or, or endorse this administrative law system, but this is the system we have. Okay. So uh, it's pretty interesting. And um, I hope, uh, you know, this case is, it, it's something that's going on now. It's a current event thing, but I hope maybe some of the concepts that I went through here are a little more evergreen so that you can take these and when you're listening to people talk about Supreme Court opinions or, or circuit court opinions and constitutionality of laws and regulations, um, you can take some of the stuff that I talked about here and apply it there. Uh, understand how 
federal agencies work, uh, understand this idea of delegation where Congress delegates its authority to create legislation um, to an executive agency and understand, you know, what the court's role really is, is the court, the and like I said before, like the court's role is to not set itself up as an expert, um, like in this case, as an expert in viruses or vaccines, right? The court's role is to be an expert at interpreting the Constitution and interpreting the laws that, that are passed by Congress, um, and then making sure that whatever action is being taken is consistent with those laws or consistent with its interpretation. But also understand that interpretations are just, are they're subjective. They are just that. They are interpretations. And there is no objective law. Um, and the idea of the rule of law, by extension, I think is, is I agree that it's a myth. And that things can change just based on who the justices are uh, sitting on the bench, that they're not going to be completely objective. Um, I don't doubt that some of them try, um, but understand that, you know, justices can change how they interpret the Constitution from case to case. I wrote an article for Liberty Weekly explaining this, that there's there's different... um, different methods of constitutional interpretation or different, different theories of constitutional interpretation. And there's nothing that says that a justice has to consistently follow one theory. So the, the way it usually, the way it really ends up is that if a justice wants to case to go one way, they can come up with some theory and constitutional interpretation theory to make the case go the way they want it to. And they can always reason it out. I mean, these are, they're smart men and women they are they're good with words i mean go read some some opinions there i mean there's some stinker opinions out there but some of these things are some very well written documents and they can logic they can twist logic left right up down backwards forwards in order to get to the outcome that they want and also you know from what i understand there's a lot of wheeling and dealing on the supreme court too there's a lot of people they really want a case to come out one way so they're willing to you know you know hey other justice sitting next to me if you vote my way on this case then i'll side with you on this other case that's important to you and that you know I'm not comfortable with that because I I don't think that it's very objective. It's 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 a group of nine people having far too much influence over what happens in our country, but that's the system we have. And so I think it's important to understand it. And I think it's important to understand the limitations of the Supreme Court. And I think it is important to understand, you know, where they get things right. Um, you know, it's good that we do have somebody, I think left with the final say on what the law is, right? That's a pretty famous quote from early Marbury versus Madison case. You know, it's the Supreme Court's role to say what the law is. So, but understand too, like I said, it's subjective and it can change based on who's on the court. So um, one time I can really think of this is when FDR was first trying to push through his new deal. um, And the court was made up largely of people who were against the new deal. So they kept striking down the new deal regulations and FDR was around for a long time. And as he was able to appoint new justices, as old justices left the bench, he was able to appoint new justices. He was obviously going to appoint justices who were favorable. Um, and there's apparently a little bit of a arm twisting going on there too, where he was threatening to pack the court, but he was able to change the court's opinion. I mean, in that time, the constitution didn't change, but the makeup of the bench or the makeup of the court did. So we went from the, uh, 
New Deal programs being struck down as unconstitutional to them flying through the courts without any problems. So that's that's one of the big things to keep in mind here. And I know I, I kind of feel like I'm getting redundant and repeating myself. So I'm just going to cut it off there. Um, so again, I hope you guys got something out of this. I may start doing my own podcast where I talk about this um, a little over an hour and I oh, made it. Okay. Not bad. So um, if you guys like it, yeah, let me know. Or if you don't like it, let me know. Um, if you have any suggestions or questions, things if, that I didn't explain clearly enough, let me know. Like I said, I'm going to put my email address um, in the show notes and I'm going to set up a contact page on our website so you guys can get in touch with me directly. Um, I'm going to take a look at the video. <laughs> I just, I, yeah, I don't, I don't know, have, don't have any idea how this video is going to turn out. Um, but I'll probably go ahead and post the video on uh, Odyssey just for the fun of it, just so people can laugh at me, I guess, and criticize me for being a, a doof trying to do something that he's not, doesn't know anything about. Um, but I will definitely be posting the audio as well um, on all the, the major podcast platforms and um, like, share, comment, um, go out to Apple iTunes, leave reviews. Apparently you can leave uh, star ratings on Spotify now. So go out and leave us a good five star on Spotify. That's, that's my platform of choice. Spotify. I really like it. Um, and yeah, go out to the mentally unscripted.com sign up for our email list. Unfortunately, the, we didn't issue or we didn't put out a newsletter this week. Cause like I said, Stefan's on the DL and he is, hopefully going to be back next week. Uh, maybe I can talk him into writing two newsletters uh, for next week. We'll see. I'm not making any promises, but we'll see. So yeah, with that, uh, we are out of here. Thanks for tuning in. I appreciate it.